The reading today is taken from Ephesians, which you'll find in the Bible in front of you on page 1175. It's uh, chapter 3, 14, uh, 14 to 21, and then over the page, chapter 4, 29 to chapter, two, uh, chapter, chapter 5, verses 2. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, for whom every family in in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with the power through his spirit in the inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know his love that surpasses knowledge, and that you may be filled to the measure of all fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is his work within us. To him be the glory in church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving uh, to each other, just as Christ God, Christ. God forgave you. Follow God's example. Therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Four, five. That would be super helpful. We've already prayed, so um, let's just get straight underway. I wanted to start today with the opening lines from Hugh Grant at the beginning of the romantic comedy Love Actually, which is my favorite romantic comedy fairly short list, uh, fair enough. Then I realized that I'd used it in a sermon, uh, at the start of a sermon that I did from 1 Corinthians 13, three years ago. And I reckon, you see, I'd be able to get away with it, except guarantee there'd be like one pernickety person in each service who'd come up at the end and say, didn't you use that three years ago at the start of 1 Corinthians 13? I used it so many times at weddings over the years. I was getting ready to do a wedding with a couple. They were heaps excited. They just had a single request, and I thought they were going to, um, you know, want, want special candles or want me to reference some relative who'd flown in from England. Um, but their only request was that I did not use the opening lines from Hugh Grant at the start of Love Actually for their wedding address. So instead today, I'm going to read out five famous quotes about love from five films across the generations. If you can get all five, you win a prize. Let's go. The greatest thing you'll ever learn is just to love and to be loved in return. Now, you've got to keep the answers to yourself, okay? You self-test. Have you locked in an answer in your own mind? Are you alive? Excellent. That is, of course, from Moulin Rouge, starring our own Nicole Kidman. Anyone get that, by the way? Okay. Bunch of culture vultures here, hey? Number two, you had me at hello. Jerry Maguire, starring Tom Cruise. Here's one for um, certain segments of the congregation. 
He's looking at you, kid. It's from Casablanca. They don't make movies like they used to, do they? Now they use colour. <laughs> Number four. It's also a novel. I've come here with no expectations, only to profess, now that I am at liberty to do so, that my heart is and always will be yours. Do you know what that is? Sense and Sensibility, I heard down here, starring Hugh Grant. <laughs> He's everywhere, man. <laughs> I'm also just a girl standing in front of a boy asking him to love her. Notting Hill. Who got that one? Also starring Hugh Grant. Ridiculous. Okay, who's got five? Lias is on. Who's got four? A few. Okay, he's a tiebreaker. Nobody wins because he didn't get all five. You should be kissed and often by someone who knows how. It's gone with the wind, isn't it, Caroline? But you were here at eight o'clock, so that doesn't count. And I reckon that lady there has got a really sore neck, don't you? <laughs> what is it, do you think, about love that um, just inspires so many films and books and songs and dreams and aspirations? Whether we are talking about romantic love, which is the essence of romantic comedies, or the love for children or parents or friends, never loses its currency. It always feels fresh in our hearts, doesn't it? I reckon that tells us something about life as human beings. I reckon it also tells us something about God. After all, love is the only noun that God is equated with. God is love. Now, God is forgiving and God is holy, but the Scriptures do not say that God is forgiveness or that God is holiness in quite the same way as it says God is love. It is his defining characteristic. So it ought not to be a surprise to us that love is to be a defining quality among his people. And that's what we're thinking about today. How will we be better together? Presumably only if we care for one another and express love in many ways. And that's worthy of our thoughts today. So today I want to mix up things a little bit. I want to talk about some of the practical stuff first and then move on to the motivational stuff. And so firstly for today, live a life of love. Would you read with me chapter 5, verse 2, where it tells us to walk in the way of love. My older version says, live a life of love, and that amount of alliteration is irresistible to me, so live a life of love it is. Of course, whichever way you express it, uh, living, walking, describes love not just as an emotion, which is what romantic comedies trade upon, nor even just an action, which you often hear Christians say, love isn't an emotion, it's an action. In, in fact, it's both an emotion and an action, but when the Bible says walk in the way of love, it's describing love as a lifestyle, really, an ongoing attitude of the heart that is expressed in multiple ways each day in concrete, ground-level action. Live a life of love. Very helpfully, the Apostle Paul, uh, Jesus' official spokesman who wrote this letter to the Ephesian Christians, gives us some ideas of how to express that ongoing attitude of the heart 
in concrete ways, even in the tiny passage that's read to us today. For example, have a look at chapter 4, verse 29. It focuses in on our speech. Withhold your unwholesome talk. Stop it from leaving your lips. And the underlying idea there is the idea of rottenness that leads to further rotting. I wonder if you would characterize your speech like that. Rottenness. It sounds rotting. It makes others feel rotten. Overly critical. Overly bitter. Judgmental. Assumes the worst in other people. Hates their success. Gloats in their downfall. You see, it sounds rotting and it makes others feel rotten. Now, I just reckon it'd be better not to have those attitudes in your heart at all, wouldn't it? And if bitterness and criticism are in you often, you've got to deal with that. But if they are in there, verse 29 says, don't let it leave your lips. Much more profitable to use your words positively, to build others up according to their needs. I mean, you and I, we all know the, uh, the affirming impact of a compliment, don't we? Surprising that we don't give them out more often. We know the, the uh, affirming impact of an encouraging word or even just a friendly conversation. Man, this week I found it personally challenging when I was trying to calculate my compliment to criticism ratio. What do you reckon yours would be? Verse 29 goes on to say that it might benefit those who listen. And I don't think it's just talking about the person you're speaking to. I think it's actually including others who are within earshot. How interesting that is. You know that uh, the Gone with the Wind quote? It said, you should be kissed and often and by someone who knows how. You know what this passage is saying? You should be encouraged and often by people who know how. But additionally, there's a multiplier effect of uplifting speech. You see, it will infect others as well, benefiting all those who listen. So live a life of love. Walk in the way of love in your speech. And do likewise with kindness. You can see there how verse 31 contrasts with verse 32. You see, you could be angry, uh, slanderous, malicious which means you say things with the goal of destroying someone else's reputation or self-worth. You would have noticed the, the violence in the language there, rage and brawling. I mean, that's pretty unattractive, isn't it? Actually, it's quite frightening by the sound of it. Could it really be the case that people are scared of you as a Christian person? And I, I, I don't really mean your kids when they've done something really bad. I mean, they ought to fear necessary punishment they shouldn't laugh at their parents when they've done something wrong but would others have a default attitude of fear towards you because of your anger or your impatience or your aggression well verse 32 provides a beautiful antidote and contrast to anger and slander be kind be kind have compassion forgive one another I um, said earlier, I'm very happy to say it again, I've been impressed with how Bruce does this week by week with all the pressures that he is under, even when he's confronted by folks who might be speaking out of emotions. It's been an education to me, and I still have much to learn. So 
today when you're just telling him something you've appreciated about his ministry among us these last 10 years, you might like to ask him how he does that. I suspect it helps to give your anger over to God in prayer and confession. Uh, to not take everything personally. And to not think so highly of ourselves that when we're criticised, we either crumble or we go straight into attack mode. Let us live a life of love in our speech, but also in our kindness. A friend of mine was uh, telling me about one of his relos once. Uh, if my memory serves me, it was a French lady who had married into his family, <coughs> his family what you could fairly describe as a bit of a bogan clan. In fact, that's the way he would describe it. I gather that she had typical French elegance, but she had a Roman nose, um, by which I mean it was roaming all over her face. Now, I get that. I've got a biggish nose myself. Mine's been out of shape from fighting when I was younger. But anyway, she decided to have cosmetic surgery to reduce the size of her nose and to kind of smooth the edge of it uh, off, I guess. And my friend asked her why she had the operation she said that she didn't want to pass her Roman nose onto her future children. <laughs> and uh, he was a bit rogue, this friend. He took great delight in explaining to her that's actually not how genetics works. And he took great delight in relaying the conversation to me. Because her children will bear the family resemblance. They just will. It's the way that it works. When it comes to living a life of love, that's exactly how it's meant to work for us. We follow our Father's resemblance and His example. Have a look at chapter 5, verse 1. Follow God's example as dearly loved children. You see, it's talking about following the family resemblance. My older version again says, uh, be imitators of God. But you can't imitate God in terms of His creative power or His sovereign control over all things. Or his extraordinary ability to know the end from the beginning, the beginning from the end, his outstanding wisdom, or in a great many other things, but we can follow his example when it comes to love. You only have to think of the sheer fact that we have life and yet have no entitlement to it. I mean, God was under no obligation to make us, He did not need to make us to, to accommodate for some deficiency or loneliness or lack within Himself. He made us because He loves us. He created us out of the overflow of the love that was shared between Father, Son and Spirit before the creation of time. And having made us, He was under no obligation to speak to us. Certainly not in words that mere humans can understand. It's only out of His loving kindness towards us that He would accommodate us in words that we can understand, which must sound just a little bit like kids' babble in light of his unreachable intellect. And yet he speaks to us. And then he would have the overwhelming compassion to send his son, a very part of himself, to live among us and to willingly take upon himself human frailties and limitations. I really think it will assist us in our quest to live a life of love if we follow the example of our Heavenly Father, who has so displayed His loving kindness in us, in making us, in speaking to us, and then who sent His Son to walk among us. Not a hint of rotten talk, not a skerrick 
of slander, but kindness, compassion, and love. So as his dearly loved children, we follow God's example. We imitate him. We bear the family resemblance. Now, I think that is a big help in working through the the how and the why of living a life of love. There's a further aspect of the why, the motivational aspect, that I think is worth us dwelling upon. And that is we not only follow our Father's example, but we're fueled by Christ's forgiveness. How do we live a life of love? Well, we follow God's example, but we're fueled by His Son's forgiveness. And I, I think if you look at this passage, forgiveness is almost the epitome of love, its highest expression. Uh, you see it there in chapter 4, verse 32. Read along with me. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. You see it again in chapter 5, verse 2. Walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Very interesting way that verse 2 describes the sacrifice of Christ. It doesn't say, as you might expect, that Christ's sacrifice of himself on the cross for our sins, in our place, to restore us to right standing with God should we trust in Him. It doesn't say that sacrifice was an acceptable sacrifice, though it obviously was. It doesn't say that it was a sufficient sacrifice, covering over or fully paying for our sins, though it obviously did. It does not even reflect upon Christ's sacrifice as being a perfect sacrifice, which it clearly was. It describes Christ's sacrifice as fragrant. Fragrant. It smelt good to God. It pleased His nostrils. I wonder what that smell is to you. Is it the salty uh, smell of frying bacon or or, uh, onions or garlic in the fry pan? Is it the sweet aroma of a candle scented with vanilla? Or French pear. I know some of you ladies like that sort of thing. Some of us boys do as well. Maybe it's frangipani in the spring. Maybe it's the smell of um, sweet mangoes in the summer. Or sizzling lamb, Asian spices. What is it for you? Because our text says that whatever that smell does for you, Christ's act of self-sacrificial love does that for God and we are to be both motivated by that act and instructed to mimic that act in our daily lives as we walk in the way of love among one another our best intentions not enough our willpower it's not enough willpower is like a muscle that can get strengthened and yet it also tires even the example of God in making us speaking to us, sending His Son to live among us is not enough. We'll, need, uh, we'll only love one another well if we're fueled 
by the love of Christ, which has been expressed most supremely and powerfully in his sacrificial death that supplies our very forgiveness. Which is what the Apostle Paul says there in chapter 3, verse 17. I pray that you, he means the church, use. I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. What does it mean to be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God? It's the picture of a glass being filled to the top or being filled to its measure. It means we become like the one in whom all the fullness of God lived in bodily form. The Apostle's prayer is that we become like Christ, but you will notice the way that we become like Christ is to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is His love for us. We won't be like Jesus unless we know the love of Jesus in the deep parts of our souls. And the way we know that love most is that He voluntarily walked among us and then died sacrificially for us, a fragrant offering that pleased God and paid the penalty for our sins and shortcomings. Friends, we cannot follow God's example. We cannot bear the family resemblance in the way we love one another without knowing the love of Christ preeminently expressed in His forgiveness. Our best intentions aren't enough and our willpower is too weak. We live a life of love following our Father's example fueled by the Son's forgiveness because that love expresses the very depth of his concern for us. Now, of course, one of the questions is, how do we do that in practical terms? Because we uh, need to remember this passage isn't telling us to be patient with other drivers on the road or not to slander our bosses or other mums in our mother's group who've got it a bit more together, at least we think, or even not to fly off the handle with our own employees or kids, though all those things are good to do or not good to do appropriately. Passage is primarily directed at the way we interact with one another within the believing community here. So here are some possibilities. I think it's going to be difficult for us to live a life of love if we don't interact with one another. So to me, it's just logical that prioritizing our time together is a baseline expectation of the apostle, of God himself. I mean, how can you live a life of love if you're not in proximity to one another? I really would encourage you to automate the decision to come to church week by week if you haven't already, because it's just too tiring to make that decision every single Sunday. There's always going to be something that comes up. So just automate the decision, save yourself the trouble of having that internal conversation every week. I want to thank um, all of you who do. I I really feel your love for me in doing that. Not because I'm a minister, because I'm your brother. Of course, uh, physical presence, that's just a start point, isn't it? What, What do you do when you're gathered here with the believers? For me, I think I've missed out on stacks of opportunities to learn and to teach, to encourage and to be encouraged because my attitude has just been wrong. I've either been critical of the person up front, judgmental of the person at the back. 
instead of wondering what God might have me here in every conversation, is it an encouragement? Is it a reminder? Is it a challenge? A provocation? Sometimes we can think that conversations are just an ordeal to endure before we get onto things we'd rather do, like talk to our old mates. Well, you would know, even with scaffolding up, that every week new people find their way into this place. And you would know, if you've been here for any, any length of time, that uh, within the room today there are hurting people who would just benefit from a chat. And there'd be lonely folks who could do with one other person taking an interest. Really not having a go at you. I just think it'd be worth asking the question, when was the last time you had a conversation with somebody who wasn't one of your buddies? When was the last time you had a conversation who wasn't in the exact same kind of stage of life as you are? There are a good couple of diagnostic questions to ask. And actually, whoever you're talking to, new friend, old friend, could, could genuine conversation, rather than shallow chatter, be a part of your experience? Could, could praying for one another at conversation end just be one of the things that we do? It shouldn't be abnormal in church, should it? Often we can be thinking, uh, who's looking after me? I mean, who, who is taking an interest in me? And that might be a legitimate thought at certain points across your life. But I think for most of us, that's a temporary thought. And the default thought of our hearts really ought to be, who can I show loving kindness towards and in what practical ways? You know, um, friends, one of the reasons why we have small groups and why I've even been encouraging folks who can't meet in a small group to meet as a little trio is because that's a way of breaking this large group down into smaller units where love can be expressed and given and received. I really do think being in a small group is like swimming between the flags at the beach. It doesn't guarantee that you won't get into trouble, but you do know there'll be people that'll be on the lookout for you and people who are keen to help. Outside of meeting together, I wonder if you could send a text, make a phone call, make a meal, invite someone over to yours. It doesn't need to be gourmet, it really doesn't, it's not the point. Little ways of expressing care one to another. Uh, in more serious scenarios, we do have a grace group here at church, which is a way that care can be expressed in practical ways. We just release resources to people who've found themselves in a time of crisis. Furthermore, I'm really delighted, I really am, in the number of people across all the congregations who expressed an interest in pastoral care training at the recent sign up and serve. Well, we will be taking you up on that offer in the new year because friends, you, can, you cannot overstate the simple power of ordinary folks showing care to other ordinary folks. We're almost done today, but I'm delighted to invite up to the stage a wonderful lady who's gonna share with us just a little bit of her story as an encouragement for us to love one another. Would you please welcome up Rosemary Scott. There you go, Rosemary. Thank you, good morning. Good morning, Cat's waving to you up the back. Excellent. 
See, normally other black people are doing this to me, you know? <laughs> now, Rosemary, I've, I've got one question, and then we're going to let you cut loose. Um, tell us your full name and how long have you been here at St Matthews? Um, I'm Rosemary Scott, and I've been coming to St Matthews since 2010. Okay. Now, you've carefully put together your story. Just unleash upon us. I think we benefit from that. Okay. You ready? <laughs> um, when I came to St. Matt's in 2010, I'd had a severe mental breakdown and I had left an abusive marriage. Only my family here in Manly took me in and provided a place to live. I would have been homeless. I was so lonely and while I loved Jesus, I felt so disconnected spiritually. I had spent lots of time in the psychiatric hospital and sadly, friendships had fallen away. I was a broken person. An old Christian friend of mine who had shown me sisterly love in the darkest moments encouraged me to attend church again. St. Matt's had a special vibe to it and the teaching was excellent. I filled in a Connect card. Kath Clark came to visit me. I shared my story with her and felt her genuine, caring, sisterly love and kindness. I started going to Inspire Bible Study and gradually began to trust the ladies in my group and built friendships, sisterly love. Being in a study group made me feel like I belonged while studying God's word. I became involved in Soup Kitchen and Di Atkin showed me sisterly love, allowing me to be a dessert cook. I challenged myself to produce 84 chocolate brownies on a regular basis. This little exercise built up my self-esteem. Then there was an opportunity to supply clothing for the guests of the soup kitchen. Di gave me her approval to set up a clothing table and today we are blessed to provide a huge range of clothing. I'm personally just so grateful for the acceptance and brotherly and sisterly love from the soup kitchen team. Mentally, I felt I had a purpose again. I have felt the love of Christ throughout my Christian journey through sisterly and brotherly love. I still struggle with forgiveness in my life, but I'm trying to follow Christ's example. I now have a good life, and a lot of it is attributed to the sisterly and brotherly love that I've experienced at St. Matt's. Thank you. I'd call that a highlight. Uh, we'll pray for you uh, and give thanks in just a second, Rosemary, but let me finish up. We are talking about love, aren't we? And uh, it, it is rightly the subject of so many books, movies, songs, dreams, aspirations. Uh, it never gets old. It freshly grips our heart. Your story's done that for us just now, Rosemary. What we've seen today is that love is something that shapes our lives as we walk in the way of love, as we live a life of love, really a lifestyle, an ongoing attitude of the heart that's expressed in multiple ways every day in concrete ground level action. Friends, can I just encourage us all to do that better together, following our Father's example and fueled by the Son's forgiveness. Let's pray to him now, giving thanks. Let's pray.
Emily Father, I, I do want to thank you for Rosemary. I thank you for the way you have worked in her life. I thank you for the wonderful contribution she makes not only to the soup kitchen and to the guests there, but to us as well week by week. Thank you for her cheery presence and her humble service. Uh, and I'm sure there's lots of people who've benefit, benefited from those wonderful brownies as well. I thank you for her willingness to share her story, to encourage us all, and it's done just that. Pray you might shower her with many blessings, protection, provision, guarding her and guiding her as well. And Lord, for all of us, fuel us by the forgiveness we know from the Lord Jesus Christ to follow your example of love and to live a life of love among one another. And we pray this for the glory of the dear Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.